I'm going to ask you to open up God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can find our passage on a pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you on page 874. And I would really encourage you to do that so that you can see what I'm talking about are not my words, but they come straight from God's Word this morning. And we've been in this series, it's, been a, it's a four-week series that we've entitled Lost. And uh, we have taken Luke 15 right out of the Gospel of Luke and focused an entire sermon series and in our small group study uh, guides uh, on this great chapter. And the reason why is Luke 15 has been described as the gospel within the gospel. Because in Luke 15, Jesus shares three stories about lost things being found. Now, the theme of lost being found is to help us as those who are sinners, those who are lost uh, in a world of sin, that God, our heavenly and loving Father, wants to find us and searches out for us so that we might be found and brought back into a right and, and vibrant relationship with Him. Now, Jesus has shared three stories amidst a mixed crowd of people. We are told in Luke 15, verse 1, that Jesus is sharing and talking with people who are identified as sinners and tax collectors. They're the deplorables of Jesus' day. They're the ones that knew they were sinful. Everybody knew that they were sinful because they carried their sin, if you will, on the outside. They were known for their sin. But then Jesus also is speaking to a group of individuals called the tax collectors and scribes. These are the, I like to call the religious muckety-mucks, if you will. Uh, they know they're better than the deplorables, and, and yet they have sin. It's just not external. It's inside the heart. It's an internal struggle that they're dealing with, their self-righteousness and their arrogance and pride. And Jesus has been sharing stories that are teaching both of these groups of people that they're lost. In the first story Jesus shares, he speaks about a lost sheep, a lost sheep that has wandered away. And it's the good shepherd who goes and searches far and wide to find that lost sheep and to bring that lost sheep back into the fold. And then the second story Jesus shares that we learned last week was a woman who's in her house who loses a coin, a silver coin to be exact, And she loses a coin, and you would think it's not that big of a deal. We lose dimes, nickels, pennies, quarters all the time. And we don't go turning our house upside down to find it. But we learned last week that that silver coin identified her not only as a married woman, but a pure woman. It was like her losing her wedding ring. And so she goes on this all-out search, and she seeks to find it. One in a far-off land, but one in the house. The sheep wandered away. Coins can't wander. And what Jesus is sharing is that whether you're close to home or far away, whether your sin is before everybody or it's somewhere hidden so no one can see it, you're still lost and in need of someone finding you. Well, at each of the end of the stories, there's a rejoicing that takes place. There's a party that breaks out. There's a celebration. The shepherd rejoices with his neighbors and fellow shepherds that the sheep is found. The woman gathers all her girlfriends together and says, that which is lost has been found. And it's a reminder that when lost people are found, God, our Father in heaven, brings about all of the heavenly creatures, angels, and and, and the rest of the Godhead together to rejoice and, and to be glad in it that that which was lost has now been found. Now, 
what has happened is, is Jesus has been working down a ratio ladder, if you will. First of all, he starts with one of a hundred with regards to the sheep. Then last week, it's one of ten coins. Today, it gets even smaller. It is one of two sons that he's going to talk about. And what Jesus is trying to get to is that whether we're a part of a big number or a small family, we are still incredibly important to God. And so Jesus shares a story, probably one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, the story as we've entitled it, the prodigal son. And in this story, a son is going to make a decision that no longer wanting to live in his father's house... He takes what is his and he goes and runs away to live a life of reckless living. At the point of utter disaster, it dawns on him that life back at home was better than the life he's living now and he makes a decision to head back. Unknowing what the response would be of his father, that decision would be one of great repentance and great desire to some way, somehow, pay restitution for the wrong he has done. And we're going to find out what the father's response is as we read the text. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 11 through verse 24 of the text. Now, this is part one of a two-part story. And so we're only going to go to verse 24, but the story goes on because we're going to learn that that amidst this family where one son has wandered away and, and, and sowed his wild oats and rebelled against his father, there's another son, an older brother, and the older brother has stayed at home. The older brother has done what he's been called to do. The older brother has obeyed and, and been diligent and doing his duty for his father. But what we're going to learn next week is maybe today you don't feel like you've done too much wandering, too much rebelling, too much... Uh, Um, going out sowing your wild oats. Well, there's a word for you next week because that one who was close to the father was far away when it came to his heart. He too was lost. And and next week, we'll talk about the lost sibling, the lost older brother. But in each of these stories, what Jesus wants us to remember is to put ourselves in the situation. So whether you feel like it or not, the scriptures tell us we're all prodigals. We all have wandered away, each going our own way, the scripture says. And so put yourself in the story as the younger brother today, and let's learn what we can about what it means to wander from God and to receive back from God when we come home. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for this story. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what we can learn uh, through it and by it. Now, Lord, I ask that we would put ourselves into this story, that we would use this story to mold us and change us and to make us more like your son. Teach us today what it means to walk away from you and your goodness. Show us the futility of a life of sin and remind us of the great love that our heavenly father has for us, that through the shed blood of Jesus, we might have life in all abundance. We love you and give you praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, just a quick show of hands. How many of you as a child ran away from home? Even for a short amount of time. I mean, be, be bold. How many of you? Okay. All right. It happens. It happens. Uh, one of three of my sons has made the decision to to get up and leave. It was our oldest, Noah, and he knows I'm sharing this story but Noah was about eight years of age, and, and he had just had enough of mom and dad. He had had enough of our rules and all of that, and it came to a head one day because a carnival was happening in our local community at the community building in town, and he wanted to go to the carnival. All his friends were going to be at the carnival, and, and mom, of course, had rules that before you went to the carnival, some things needed to be done. Well, that just was a bridge too far for our oldest son. And he said, forget that. I'm out of here. Okay, that's kind of a bold statement for an eight-year-old. And, and he stormed up the stairs and did what eight-year-olds do, right? When you're going to leave home, he started packing a duffel bag and he packed a, a pillowcase full of stuff. And he had both of them. They were weighing his little eight-year-old body down. And he stormed out the door. And Amanda says, you're going to go get him, right? Go get him. And I'm like, no, no, let him go. Let him go. Let him learn what it is to live on his own. And so he makes his way out the front door. He makes his way down the sidewalk. And I'm watching from a second story uh, window. And I'm watching. I've got my fatherly gaze upon him. And then he turns the corner. And I got to run to the back of the house. And I'm waiting to see him show up after he passes the house. And there's nobody. He's gone. Where did Noah go? Now, now I'm wondering if my strategy worked. 
Well, what happened? Where, where did he go? What did he, what did he do? And, and a man is like, I don't see him, knucklehead. Hey, hey, old man, I'm going to run away from you here in a moment. Where's our son? I'm like, I don't know. What had happened was is he had been picked up in a car. Okay, this is where dad gets in a whole lot of trouble. Luckily, it was one of our church neighbors who had seen him. By the way, it's awesome. We have a picture. I couldn't find it for this sermon illustration. It's a pathetic look. He's wearing a Village Bible Church t-shirt as he's running away. So advertising, advertising, you know, come to village where you get kicked out of your home at eight years of age. And so one of our, our church members who lives in Hinkley had picked him up and they were heading to the carnival and and they thought it was a little odd, but Noah said, hey, I'm going to the carnival. And he loaded his stuff up in there. And we got a phone call right away saying, we've got Noah. This is why Amanda is starting to get really upset with me, that my strategy is terrible. So we're going to take him to the carnival. I said, well, don't tell him we know. Just let him do his thing. And we'll, we're dealing with some things in the Badal home. Yes, pastor's houses are just as dysfunctional as your house is. And so... Amanda then says, you better get over there, and you better bring him home. And I do, and I'm watching from the door, and Noah, you're hoping that Noah's going to learn the error of his ways. He cannot live apart from mom and dad. Well, I will tell you, at the carnival, Noah won every prize you can think of. And at one point I'm watching, and it's classic. It's awesome. you got to love the 8-year-old. He's telling his friends, yeah, I'm, I'm living on my own these days. And uh, things are good, you know, and, and he's, and God, really, you're living on your, yeah, I told my mom and dad I'm out of here, and, and really, wow, that's gutsy and all of that. I'm like, the worst should be happening, and he's having his best life now right in front of my eyes, you know, and it didn't work out. He came home, and, and he learned, unlike the prodigal son, that bad things happen when you run away. He had won all kinds of stuffed animals and toys and and all of that. But at some point in our lives, we want to run away. Maybe as a kid, mom and dad's rules got too much and you wanted to run away from home. Maybe you want to run away from a relationship today. Maybe you want to run away. Here's Sunday and Monday's coming. You want to run away from a test at school. You want to run away from, uh, from a project at work. Maybe you want to uh, run away from your, your family relationships or obligations. We all at times want to run away. Even the best of believers would say from some time or another, we're tempted to want to run away from God. The hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we are at our very heart in essence, runaways. And Jesus tells this story about a runaway. And the person who runs away and throws himself into reckless living, throws himself into fruitless opportunities, he throws himself into all manner of sin, and he finds himself at the end of the day at the bottom of the barrel. And the question before the audience that Jesus is speaking to is, how is the Father going to respond? And what we are going to see is a story unlike any story about God. And I'm so thankful his son tells us it so that we know it to be true. We have a loving heavenly father that even though we are runaways at heart, when we come home, he embraces us and loves us with his grace and mercy. So this story, it's famous. 
And what I want to do is I want to walk through the story and I want to apply truths as we go uh, about the son and then about his return home and then about the reunion that takes place as a result. Let's deal first of all with the son. And what we learn from the son is that sin, sin will send us down a downward spiral. We're going to see in a matter of a short amount of verses that this guy goes from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeats. This guy is going to have everything going well for him in his father's house. In a few short verses, he is going to be at the end of his rope with no hope, no plan, no future. And what we're going to learn is that sin does that to us. We who have life and vibrancy and all that we need in our father's house, we run away, do our own thing, pursue sin, and we find ourselves down this downward spiral, this slippery slope of sin that leads us to disaster. Well, notice what his rebellion did. First of all, we see that his rebellion caused him to be selfish. It caused him to be selfish. Notice in verse... uh, 11 of the text, we're told this man had two sons. And we're told that the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the property that is coming to me. Now let's stop there. So what the son is doing is the son is doing what is commanded of fathers in the Mosaic Law, in the book of Deuteronomy. It says of fathers that your job is to divide your property between your children. Now, we know that there's two children. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that the firstborn gets a double portion of the father's inheritance. So he not only gets his portion, but he gets a second portion. And then whatever remaining children there are would then get the last uh, of the portions divvied out to them. And so with these two sons, the oldest son would get two portions or two-thirds of the possessions of the father, and the youngest would get a third. So this younger son goes and says, Dad, I want the third of the inheritance that's coming my way. Now, it's a legitimate expectation. There's only one proviso to this expectation, and that is it usually doesn't happen. It never happens until Dad dies. And so what the son is saying is, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Dad, why won't you die already? Because you're better, you're richer to me, you're more productive to me if you were dead than alive. I don't need you alive, I need you dead. So just act as if you're dead, break up your inheritance and give it to me. Talk about a selfish request. Now, let's just stop there and recognize that that is exactly what we do when we sin. That's exactly what the unbelieving world did this morning when they woke up. Because what they did was they said, God, I want your oxygen. God, I want your planet. God, I want your life. God, I want your um, uh, ability to breathe and, and all of the things that you've created. I want all of your gifts, God, but I don't want you. You see, what sin is, listen very carefully, what sin is, when we decide to sin, we take God's good gifts and we splurge on them as if God is dead. Does that make sense? So what we're saying when we choose sin 
is God, thank you for your inheritance to me. I'll take it. I'm going to use it my own way. Do it my way as if you're dead because you're better off dead to me than you are alive. And so sin causes us to be selfish. Now notice something else that's really important here. When it says that the father, which the father says, hey, I want my share of the property, it says that he divided his property between them. That word property in the Greek comes from the word, uh, it has the root bios to it, which is where we get biology from. Literally what the man was, the boy was asking for, the son, was dad, give me a third of your life. And the father tore up his life and divvied it up between his sons. And the son sat there and watched it. The son sat there as he went through the precious things that he had probably been given by his ancestors. And he said, two for the oldest, one for the youngest. He looked over his livestock and said, two-thirds to the oldest, one-third to the youngest. He, he looked over his land and he said, two-thirds to the oldest, one-third to the youngest. And he divvied up his life so that his son could take it. Now it says that his son, what is he going to do with it? Maybe he's going to take the inheritance and splurge on his father. Hey, older brother, let's throw a party for our dad. He's been so generous and so gracious. Let's take what he's given and let's spend it on them. What, a, what an awesome tribute of love and affection for a, an honorable father. But notice what the text says. He takes it. His selfishness drives him to separate from the father. To separate from the father. Verse 13 says that he takes all that he has. He gathers it up to take a journey into a far country. So notice with me for a moment. Put it in today's day. I mean, this is... This is Noah's leaving was nothing. That was funny. At least I thought it was funny. Amanda didn't. But it was funny. It's cute. It's a great cute little story of a little kid. But this is a grown man. This is a grown man who backs up his car that dad probably bought him in the driveway, right? Goes and gets a U-Haul. And he begins to walk the stuff out of the house, packing it in, in front of his dad. The heartbreak, the sorrow, rejected love at its finest. And he loads it up, shuts the door. No, goodbye, dad, I'll see you soon. I'm going to go make a life for myself. I'll make you proud. No, dad's in the rearview mirror. He peels off and it says he's heading to a far country, a far country. Jesus is trying to paint the picture that he wants nothing to do. He doesn't want to be in the same area code as his dad. His dad has connections. I don't even want to be connected to the connections of my dad. I'm going to go off, not to a neighboring country, not to the next town over, but to a far off country. In a far-off country, nobody really knows who I am. Nobody knows what family I've come from. In a far-off country, I can get away with things that I can't if I'm at home. In a far-off country, I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, and no one is going to be there to stop me. And with every step, 
and with every pursuit of following his temptations, sins, and dreams, he separates himself from the Father, and that is what sin does to us. Sin takes us from the house of God, and we go and we pursue things far from God so that God won't see it, so God won't hear about it, so the Christians around us won't be aware of it. And so we go and we do things in private and we do things in dark corners and we, we go to far off places. We can get away with it on the business trip, but we can't do those same things when we're around our community. And so he goes off to a far country. Now notice, he squanders what is important. He squanders what is important. It's all that he has. Notice it goes on and he says he goes off to this far off country. And we don't know how long he's there. But it says that he squandered his property in reckless living. So he lost it all. Now we don't know how exactly he lost it, but there are some clues. The phrase reckless living in the Greek would speak of a couple things. Number one, reckless living means that you're a bad business person. And so a person who had a business in the first century who had to um, file for bankruptcy because of bad practices, because of foolish business uh, uh, planning, they would say, oh, he squandered his business on reckless business practices. And so there's this idea that this guy doesn't know how to handle money because his dad has done all the handling of money. But now since he's separated himself from the father, now he doesn't have his dad watching an eye on him, keeping an eye on him to make sure he doesn't do something foolish. Now, one individual said that the far off country probably had different currencies, different exchanges. And so with everything that he did, he was vulnerable to the loss of money. To keep a long story short, and I won't share the whole story, but my father's an immigrant from um, Iraq, and he came to this country at 16 years of age. And at one point in his story, he tells us that he was getting a cab ride, and he pulled out all of his life savings that his family had given him as he left Iraq, and he pulled out the wad of, of cash, the envelope of cash, and the, and the taxi driver saw it. Knowing he didn't speak English, he kept saying, give me more. And before he knew it, he's handing him bills upon bills upon bills. And it took a police officer to stop and see what was going on and to stop him and say, you're giving too much. Why? Because my father was from a far-off country, and he was in a new place, and he didn't know, and he was reckless. The second idea of reckless living, the scriptures paint for us, is one who is drunk. And so drunks can be reckless in their living. How many drunks have, have gotten drunk on a Saturday night only to open up the next day or the next week or the next month the credit card statement or the banking statement and says, I spent what on what? I don't remember that. And so there's this picture that he was intoxicated, just throwing money at whatever, reckless living. Finally, we get a picture of what this son was spending his money on from the older brother. Later in the story, the father comes and tells the older brother to come in. Your brother's been found. Let's throw a party. And the older brother says, why would you kill the fattened calf? 
For a brother who, and he uses the word not squandered, but devoured your possessions, your life, and he says this, with prostitutes. Oh. Now, before I forget, and we'll talk about this next week, how would the son who stayed at home had known what the other brother had done? Many commentators believe that the father, being a loving father, kept watch on his wandering son by sending one of his servants to report back all that was going on in the far country. And word had gotten back that he was spending his money in shameful ways. Listen to me very carefully. Sin causes us to squander things. And one of the reasons why is we become addicted to sin and when we start with a little sin, the desire for it grows. And so the little that used to take care of us isn't enough anymore. So we've got to double down. We've got to double down. And before we know it, we're spending more and more money. Let me give you some illustrations from some modern-day pagan theologians. Let's start with Axel Rose of Guns N' Roses, who said of his drug habit, I used to do a little... But a little became too little, so a little got more and more. Can't we say that of sin? I used to do a little sin, but the little sin became too little, so my sin became more and more. Introduce the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, another pagan theologian. And what does he say about life? I can't get no satisfaction. Oh, I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get it. So this guy's looking for satisfaction in a far-off country, and he's doubling down, putting all of this money, this hard-earned money that a father's built over a lifetime, and he's devouring it. He's squandering it on reckless living, never getting what he's looking for. Is that not the quintessential definition of our sin? And yet, like the prodigal, we keep going after it. That sin nature is a powerful, powerful thing. Well, it leads us to something. Notice it leads us to be susceptible to trouble. Susceptible to trouble. I'll get to the slave part here in a moment. You can write that down as well. But susceptible to trouble. A famine breaks out. In other translations, a crisis happens. Something he didn't see coming. Now notice in the text, it's very important. What Jesus is sharing is important. And we blow right by these things. So notice it says that he took all, all that he had, he took a journey, verse 13, into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, notice what it says. A severe famine arose in, help me out, what's the word? Help me out. A severe famine broke out, look at the text, in that country. Now that's important because a severe famine didn't break out in what country? Daddy's country. Do you see that? It happened in his far off country. And what happened was is his sin led him places that now, at a time and at a moment, he became susceptible to all kinds of issues, all kinds 
of struggles. He wouldn't have had those struggles. In fact, when he is in the pig pen later on in the story, he says, in my father's house, they've all got bread because there's not a famine there. But because he chose to go and live in sin in a far off country, where he found himself was where the crisis took place. Listen to me very, very carefully. And it's not an all uh, general term, but it happens and sadly happens more than I wish to admit. Many times the crisis in our lives come not because we're just bystanders of some bad things, but many times we are living in the famines of our life because of consequences of our sin. Because we're not in the country we should be and we're in some far off country far away from God. And the consequences of our sin. He had devoured all he had. Had he been in his father's house, his dad was a wise man. He had endured famines before. There was always plenty in his house. His dad would have planned for it, but he had squandered it. In his father's house, there would have been connections when he brings the people together. There's all kinds of people that show up for the party because he's a well-connected man. And so had there been a famine, they would have joined together and served. He's isolated and alone, and it says, and no one will give him anything. You see, when we isolate ourselves from our heavenly Father and live in sin, we are susceptible to all kinds of issues. And how quickly the great and the mighty and the powerful can fall because of sin. He's susceptible to sin. And we see that in so many places and lives notice it makes him a slave so what does he do he's in need verse 15 so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and so the pharisees are listening to jesus and saying what a jewish man part of the household of god would go and work for a pagan a foreigner and Jesus, man, he, he twists it just to get him even more. He goes on and he says, who sent him into the fields? They're like, oh, at least he's doing something admirable. He's a farmer. That's good. No, nope. Jesus goes even farther to feed pigs. That which is unclean to a Jewish culture. And so this man is given the job. This phrase, he hired himself, literally means he gave himself over to another because he owed a debt. And so he's working in the fields, number one, because he's in need, number two, probably because he's paying back a debt. And now, instead of being a son in his father's house, he is a slave to something that's going to tell him what to do, and it's going to take him places he does not want to go. As a Jewish man, the last place he wants to be is working in a pig pen with pigs. Talk about shame. But is that not what sin does to us? Instead of living in holiness in our Father's house, we go to a far-off place, taking God's good gifts with us, spending them in ways that we shouldn't, and then when we get there, we become enslaved to these sins, and it takes us places we never thought possible. I never thought I would say such a thing. I never thought I would do such a thing. I never thought I would expose myself to these things. And, and what happens when we're a slave? We're filled with shame. And so he's in this pig pen and he's filled with shame and he's filled with uncleanness. And it, it's, I'm a slave. I don't have a choice in the matter. 
I'm stuck. And notice what sin does. The final thing sin does is it causes us to settle for garbage. To settle for garbage that leaves us unsatisfied. Notice in the text, he's working with the pigs and he should be sickened by the pigs. He should be grossed out by the pigs. He should be turned off by the pigs. And notice what sin has brought him to. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. He's looking at these unclean animals, these shameful creatures in their pig pen, their muddy mess. And he's like, boy, that really looks good. Mm, I could really use some of those pods. That would make me feel good. That would fill my soul. But it says he was left unsatisfied. Some of us this morning are eating garbage to try to be satisfied. And we wonder why we go to that sin, we go to that sin, we go to that sin, and we feel the shame, and we feel the dirtiness, and, and, and we're all busted up inside. And we find ourselves not wanting to go back home. But can I just have what the world has? Can I eat what the world's eating? The world says there's satisfaction here. But when I eat it, I'm unsatisfied. I'm left wanting more. Listen to me very, very carefully this morning. We're going to get to the Father here in a moment. But the great joy at the end of the story cannot be felt unless we feel the great pain that in six short verses we go from the heights of great love and comfort in the Father's house to the depths of being in the pig pen and mud, hungry and unfulfilled. Listen to me very carefully. Let me teach you what I've learned in 43 years of life and 16 years of ministry. Sin will always bring you pain and sorrow. I've learned this as a sinner just like you, and I've learned it as a pastor. It will bring you pain and sorrow. Listen to me. It will eat your bones and it will poison your heart. It will contaminate your closest relationships. It will sour your walk with God. And sin always leaves you hungry and helpless. So the most loving thing that I can tell myself, the most loving thing that I can tell you, my friends, is run from it as fast as you can. When you see it coming, run. The book of Ephesians says, flee, run for your life. Because in the end, it will destroy your soul. And that's what it does to this prodigal. From the heights of security to the depths of sin. Sin takes us down a downward, downward spiral. It always does. What looks good for a moment turns poison in the end. And this young man feels it. What's he to do? Where's he to go? I'm so glad the story doesn't end at verse 16. But I can say, sadly, often it does. 
Far too many prodigals, maybe some even in this place, have given up hope that in their pig pen, in their mud pit, they can't get out. But there is an answer. There is redemption. And that road back to home is repentance. Repentance is that road home. And so the story goes on. He's far away. He's in a heap of trouble. He's got all kinds of issues. But verse 17, but he came to himself. Wait a minute. Repentance begins by realizing how far we have fallen. He says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I wonder if light bulbs popped up over his head in the, when the story happened. I don't have to live like this. I don't have to do these things. I have a father. And in my father's house... Things are good. Life is good. There's security. There's sustenance. There's everything that I need. I can go back to my father's house. Listen, in the midst of his sin, truth screamed at him. And this morning, maybe in your sin, whatever your far country is where you find yourself, truth by the Holy Spirit is screaming to you. You don't have to live like this. God, by His Holy Spirit, is convicting you even now. You don't have to live this way. And as a follower of Christ, it dawns on us, wait a minute, I have a good, good Father. He'll take me back in some way, shape, or form. At least I'll have food. At least I'll have a place to sleep. At least I'll have a a life to live. I can go back to that. Repentance begins by us realizing how far we have fallen. It's the realization I'm lost. I'm lost. And I need a savior. But notice it goes on. And repentance that leads us home resolves that something needs to change. So, now listen, right away we could stop and we could get stuck and say, I'm too far gone. No one will take me back, not God. Look at my shame. Look at all my mess. I'm dirty. Look at all that I've spent. No no one's going to accept me. No one's going to receive me. And the devil's telling some of you that right now in your shame. Man, if I go home, people will see my shame. If I go home, people will know what I've done. If people uh, at home, when I go home, they'll know that I've squandered away all of my father's possessions. And I can't go back. And the devil's telling you, you can't go back. Don't go back. Stay in the pig pen. At least you can just mire yourself in the, in the garbage and, and nobody will know. But he makes a resolution. And he says, I'm going to do some things. He says, I will arise. And I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he makes a commitment. I'm going to change. I'm going to go and do something. But I want you to notice the change is incomplete. Because what he says is, I'm going to get up, and he's going to do that. And I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to tell him, Dad, I know I can't be your son. I know what I've done has... has, um, Broken the contract of sons to fathers. So I know I can't ask for that. See, right away, he doesn't know his dad. He doesn't know his dad. So he says, 
Well, my dad would no doubt treat me, follow along with me for a moment, my dad is no doubt going to treat me the way I treated him. Remember the, the selfishness of his request? The selfishness of his request was the following. Dad, I don't need you, but I need your stuff. And so the son says, I'm going to go home and my dad is going to do this reverse psychology on me. And what he's going to say is, I don't need you, but I need your stuff. Well, he's got no stuff. And so the son says, I'll become a hired hand. Literally what it is, I'll become an apprentice of one of your employees. So I won't live in the house, but I'll begin to work for one of your vendors And by working for one of your vendors, I will start to build up an income. And what I will do then is give you my income as restitution for my sin. Listen, he's doing the very same thing that got him in trouble in the first place. He thinks that possessions and money are more important than relationship. And so he goes and he's like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to speak to this in this way. But it involves something. Notice in the text it says in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. Notice there's nothing about house. There's nothing about home. I'm going to see dad. But in order to see dad, this is so important. I love that Jesus does this. In order to see dad, something's got to change. See, we think of repentance and we say, well, I'll change my mind about things. And there are some that say repentance simply is a change of mind. And I I say that's hogwash. Because repentance is more than a change of mind. Because if there's really a change of mind, there's a change in behavior. So he doesn't sit in the mud and say, well, I'm going to go to my dad and I'm going to do this, this, and this. And things will get better and never do anything about it. He gets up out of the mud out of his sin, and he turns from the far country that is behind him now, and he does a 180 from where he was going, and he begins running home. Now, he runs home by running away from his sin. The far country is the picture. It's a personification of the sinful life, and he gets up and says, I'm no longer going to sin. You see, for many of us, we stop short. We get in trouble with our sin. Maybe we get caught in our sin. Maybe we've told a lie and we get caught in a lie and and we say to God and others, I promise I'll never do that again. Nothing changes, but we promise I'll never do that again. God, you'll never see me going after those things again. You'll never hear me, God, talk like that again. Never again. But if there's no true repentance of the heart and repentance of an action, Then we fall back into it again and again and again. This guy says, I'm done with the far country. I'm I'm running from sin. Listen to me very carefully. You're running. No matter what you're doing, you're running. The question is, are you running to sin or are you running to your father? There's no in between. What are you running to? This guy had run to his sin for long enough. And it dawned on him that it would be better to run back to his father. So what does he do? He returns home. He returns home, and notice what the text says. It says that as he's returning home, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let's stop there. He doesn't know what the response is going to be. You see, repentance is a risky endeavor. It's humble. I got no other choice but to fall at the mercy of upon the mercy of my father to kneel down and humbly say, I got nothing. 
I've got nothing, Father. And that's what we do with our repentance with God. You run to God and you place yourself at His mercy. God, I got nothing except a life of sin. I got nothing to show for what you gave me because I I, uh, devoured it. I squandered it on all kinds of terrible things. I don't even want to talk about. And all I've got standing before you is myself beatered and uh, beaten and battered and, and dirty. It's a risky endeavor. But what does he find? He finds forgiveness. And the reason why he finds forgiveness isn't because the law of Moses said, fathers, when your sons go away and are wayward and rebel against you and are disobedient, kill the fattened calf, put a robe on them and and love on them. No, it says when they get home, kill them. Kill them. Throw a party. Gather all your friends and tell them to, it's B-Y-O-S. Bring your own stone. And bring the stone, bring the rocks, and we're going to kill them. So word gets out. I don't know how some say it's because he's had someone watching him the entire time. That the father knows the son's coming home. And he looks and he sees from afar the son coming back. And forgiveness wells up in his heart. He forgives because he's a loving father. Because he's filled with compassion. He sees this terrible shadow of a son that he once had entering in. And he runs to him. This is unbecoming of a Middle Eastern father, the patriarch of the family. The patriarch of the family doesn't run. To run in a robe means you have to hike up your your robe and show off your legs and show exertion. That's not what you do. And then it says he embraces him. And there's this, this very emotional response. And again, I understand this. I come from a Middle Eastern home. And I can tell you two things my grandfather didn't do as the patriarch. He didn't run. People waited for him. He didn't run to them. And one thing I rarely saw in my grandfather was emotion. It was unbecoming of a patriarch to show emotion like that. He runs and he embraces the son. Now, why does he embrace the son? Because I think deep down inside, he's worried that as this guy's walking down Main Street, probably naked and shamed, that the men of the city are grabbing their rocks and saying, it's time to kill him. So he runs to protect him. He runs to to protect him, and they're going to have to get through me to get to my son. And if I show myself to love my son, then my son will be protected. And that's what he does. So a couple things we see from the father. We see he's looking always for his return. God's longing for you to return. God knows where you're at. The father knew where the son was. And the father's waiting. And the father's using things in your life to bring you low so you'll come back to him. And when he sees you, he has compassion. Now there's something else that he does. Notice that there's no mention. The son starts talking and the father cuts him off. Now, I know where the son was going. Father, I'm going to be a hired hand in your house because I'm unworthy to be your son. And so you're going to, listen, what I did in the country, he doesn't get that far. Far countries never talked about because God leaves. He leaves our sin behind. I don't want to hear about it. 
It's been taken care of. Leave the shame back there. And so what does he do? He lavishes on us good gifts. Good gifts. Bring the robe. Why? He's naked. He's shamed. Put my robe on him. So instead of people seeing him, they see me. Give him my ring, the ring that my sons wear, that he probably had taken and thrown at his father. I don't want to be your son anymore. Bring me that ring. Put it on his finger so no one ever doubts he's my son. And go get the prime rib, the black Angus. Skin it. Kill it. Kill it first. Then skin it. (laughs) Call five bees. Throw a barbecue. Call all my neighbors. Call all my friends. That which was lost is now found. That which was dead is now alive. And what we do is we see a picture of God's immense grace for us as sinners. We come to God and we're broken and battered and beaten down by this world and sin. We've got nothing to show for us. And we think we're going to have to explain ourselves to God. And God lavishes his love upon us and says, welcome home. Welcome. Let's celebrate and be glad. The story of the prodigal son speaks to the message of a loving father who out of his grace, compassion, and mercy showers us as dirty, rotten, filthy sinners with unspeakable grace. Oh, how deep the father's love for us. We who are lost are found. And the God of the universe celebrates our return. So maybe this morning, you've been running from God. Start running away from your sin. And return home. And not experience shame and sorrow, but grace and mercy. And the blessings and the benefits that come to being in the Father's house. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and I thank you again for this incredible story. And I thank you for the truths that we can learn from it. Now, Lord, we know this story's not done. We know there's still another part of the story that we have yet to unfold. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just sit as prodigals and hear you calling us home. Lord, we don't have to worry about our shame. We don't have to worry about our sin because it was covered. We've already heard it saying today, it was shed for us, that blood of Jesus. And all that we get to receive now is a celebration and hugs and love and mercy because that which was lost has been found. Lord, I pray that those who are lost this morning might find themselves in your embrace before they leave this place. That they would seek out others and ask, how can I be found in God? How can I come home? And that they wouldn't leave until they know that they're back in the Father's house. Loved by our Heavenly Father. We love you and give you the praise for that love and that mercy and that compassion. And we thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.